passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, uh, on my bookshelf, there's this book. It's, uh, it's like 800 pages long, and, and it's called Some Pastors and Teachers. And it's, a, it's a, a kind of a memoir, not really a memoir. It's a, it's a reflection on over 50 years of pastoral ministry from this guy named Sinclair Ferguson. And the book's subtitle is one of the most terrifying things I think I've ever read. The subtitle is this, Reflecting a Biblical Vision of Whatever Every Minister is Called to Be. And that terrifies me because as a pastor, someone who is in this pulpit ministry, it is a recognition that there are some expectations. There is, a, uh, there is an expectation God has on those who are called into ministry. And I have to confess that because that subtitle is so intimidating for me, I haven't read all of the book. Um, it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, it has everything to do with it being 800 pages long. But every single time I crack this book open and I flip to a chapter, and that's one of the nice things about this book is it's, it's relatively easy to just pick a chapter and read it at random. Every single time I, I open it up, I inevitably end up almost moved to tears by the wisdom of this this former pastor, I guess he's still currently a pastor, the wisdom of decades, of over 50 years of pastoral ministry and how he's conveying it in this written medium to someone who's been in, in pastoral ministry for a whopping seven years. It's this powerful book, and in this real sense, it's a, it's a culmination of his life work of decades of pastoral ministry. But rather than starting the book, as um, so many might have done, with an example, one of his uh, you know, best examples of, of the challenge or, or the delights or, or the beauty or the hardship of pastoral ministry from his own life, he actually doesn't start that way. He starts instead with three separate chapters on three pastors who are extremely influential for him in his life and in his ministry. From throughout the, throughout the ages, he looks at John Calvin, he looks at John Owen, and then he looks at John Murray. And as I, I read the, the chapter on John Owen, this pastor theologian from the 1600s, uh, he starts this chapter with this quote from David Clarkson, who actually was a, a co-pastor with John Owen and actually gave the funeral message at uh, Owen's funeral. And he, he writes this, describing John Owen, he says, a pastor, a scholar, a shepherd of the first magnitude, Holiness gave a divine luster to his other accomplishments. It shined in his whole course and was diffused throughout his whole conversation. And that second line there, that, that language of holiness gave a divine luster to all of his other accomplishments, gets at the heart of John Owen's life and really gets at the heart, I think, of, of pastoral ministry, really what should be the heart of every Christian in, in their life as well. No matter how many are accomplishments, no matter how many are accolades, and if you know anything about John Owen, he had a lot of accomplishments. He had a lot of accolades as well. They, they pale in comparison to the worth of a commitment to, to know Jesus and to reflect Jesus as well. And in a very real sense, that's the heart of Paul's words here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as he's writing to his friend and his son in the faith, Timothy. 
Paul is nearing, to, nearing the end of his life. And as he's, as he's nearing the end of his life, he, he turns his attention to Timothy. And he, he's urging, he's pleading with Timothy, and, and by extension us this morning as well, that Timothy and, and us, that we would persevere in our faith. And that's the heart of this text. It's a message from Paul to Timothy, a message from Paul to you, a message from the Holy Spirit to you to remind us to remain in the gospel. To remain in the gospel. Don't stop running to Jesus. The heart of this text is found in verse 14. Everything that Paul is saying is built on what he says at the beginning of verse 14. He says this, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So here's what Paul is saying to Timothy in this context. He says, hey, Timothy, I, I know that things are, are, are going really poorly right now. It looks like things are falling apart in your church. I know that there are, are false teachers left and right, and, and it's not just that they are beginning to gain a foothold. It actually looks like they have actually taken over the church. But in spite of that, I want you to keep your focus on one thing. I want you to continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. In other words, I want you to remain in the gospel. And this word continue here in verse 14, it's the same word as uh, abide, which we looked at earlier in John chapter 15. It's the same word as remain. Jesus, again, John 15, he's talking to his disciples and he tells them to do what? Abide in me or continue in me, remain in me. And I in you, as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So what Paul is saying is, Timothy, when your world is falling down around you, here's what you have to do. You have to remain in the gospel. You have to remain in Jesus. You have to keep running to whom? That's the key to a faithful life. And that's the key for all of us, to remain in the gospel. Don't stop running to Jesus. Of course, this begs a question for us. If Paul's charge is for us to be a people who remain in the gospel, to keep running to Jesus, how do we do that? Where do we find the strength when life is hard, when, when there is temptation to just abandon this whole thing and say, is this even real and just walk away? Where do we find the strength to persevere and to remain? And that's what Paul talks about in this passage, in verses 10 through 15, he gives us two ways for us to remain strong, for us to, to remain in the gospel. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I, I want to put it this way. This is not overstating the case to say that if you take this seriously, this has a 100% success rate. 100% success rate. If you take Paul's two keys, his, his two ways for us to remain in the gospel, if you take those to heart and you implement them into your lives on a consistent, habitual basis, you will remain in the gospel. You will never turn your back. You will never fall away. You will persevere. You will endure. To use the language of our sermon series, you will be faithful to the end. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 10 this morning. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 10. You, however, 
have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Paul gives us these, these two keys or these, these two paths for us to remain in the gospel. They're not necessarily profound, but they are powerful and effective. The first one is found in verses 10 through 13. Paul is basically saying, if you want to remain in the gospel, you have to look to the faith of those who go before you. If you want to remain in the gospel, you have to look to the faith of those who go before you. For Paul, or for Timothy, that means he has to look to the example of Paul. Remember the relationship here between Paul and Timothy. It's, it's one of a kind. They've been partners in the gospel for over 10 years to this point. They've been traveling together. They've been preaching together. They've been ministering together. They've been praying together. And Timothy has had an, over a decade to observe firsthand how the gospel has transformed and influenced the life of Paul. Notice what Paul says, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Last week, Pastor Kurt led us through the passage right before this. As he was leading us through verses 6 through 9. We saw Paul's talking about false teachers. And he's warning Timothy of these false teachers and, and how they're opposing him. And he's, he's encouraging Timothy to be faithful. And Paul contrasts Timothy with those false teachers with this word, however, at the beginning of verse 10. He starts with this word, however. He says, hey, Timothy, I, I know that you're, you're, you're aware of my life, but you're not just aware of my life. You've actually been following my life as well. You've been following my example. You've been following my precedents. In contrast to what these false teachers are doing, this is the path that you are on. And then he lists this. Uh, this is a long list of all of these different aspects of Paul's life that Timothy is following, that he is aware of. And, and I want us to jump in and, and look at all of these different things and what they specifically mean. But before we do that, I want us to just make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees. What Paul is saying when he lists all of these different areas of his life, he's, he's really summing up his entire life. And, and what Paul is doing is he's inviting Timothy into his life. And he's saying, hey, you know what? You've seen that my private life lines up with my public one. Thomas Brooks describes it this way. His life is a commentary upon his sermons. Heavenly doctrine is adorned with a heavenly life. I love that language. 
that a life is commentary on the sermons that Paul gave. And as we look at these words as all-encompassing, Paul is this faithful follower of Jesus, and he's saying, Timothy, if you want to remain in the gospel, you've got the template. Just follow me. And then he highlights these eight areas of his life that are particularly relevant for Timothy as he's in this contentious age, in this contentious spot in Ephesus. Let's take a moment to just look at, at each thing that he mentions here. First, he mentions his teaching. In contrast to the the false teachers who are leading a lot of people astray with their lies about God and the gospel, Paul has remained faithful. And the content of, of Paul's teaching from the beginning until the end is Jesus. That's why when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he says this about his teaching. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whether we realize it or not, we are shaped by what we consume. And this is true in all of life. This is one of the dangers of the 24-hour news cycle. This is the danger of social media algorithms only showing us one side or one opinion. But it's also true in the church. The teaching to which we expose ourselves will influence us for good or for ill. So how crucial, how essential is it for remaining in the gospel, persevering to the end, to be in a church that resolves, like Paul, to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, to know nothing more than the gospel. But in our overly connected age, it doesn't just mean that. In this age where there are a number of sermons and podcasts and books and live streams and and more at our fingertips, it means we have to be wise in what else we consume. Paul's words here are very clear. He says, Timothy, you know my teaching. You can see the differences between the true gospel that I have proclaimed my entire life and the false teaching of these false teachers. Don't lose sight of that. In the midst of hardship and difficulty, you have the template for your own ministry in the gospel. You have my teaching. And by extension, continue to follow that teaching. Next, Paul mentions his conduct. For Paul, the teaching of the gospel is never separated from a life that is continuing to be transformed by the power of that gospel through the Holy Spirit. You can't have one without the other. This is again in contrast to the false teachers of that day. Remember how Paul described them a few verses earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 3. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Don't try to say that all in one breath. It's not this popular idea today in our culture, but there's no getting around it. God cares deeply about holiness. And as I said earlier, Timothy has been exposed not just to Paul's public life, but also his private life. Timothy has seen how Paul deals with disappointment, how he deals with frustration, how he deals with anger, how he deals with betrayal, how he deals with plenty and with lack, how he deals with everything. 
Paul has shown Timothy what perseverance looks like through his conduct. This is a life that is transformed and is continuing to be transformed by the power of God through the gospel at work in his life. And so Paul says, Timothy, I want you to follow this. Next thing he mentions is this guiding principle that that governs not only his teaching, but also his conduct, and that is his aim in life. I don't know if any of you have a, a detailed life plan. Paul probably didn't, but he definitely had priorities figured out. And for Paul, he had this overarching goal in his life. It wasn't just something that he said, that he put up on a wall that he never really actually looked at, but it was something that influenced every single area of his life. It was the lens through which he made decisions. And sometimes he said yes because of his aim in life, and sometimes he said no. It is what informed his missionary journeys and where he went on those missionary journeys, who he brought with him on those missionary journeys. He prioritized his life around his life's purpose. What is that purpose? Well, he tells us multiple times throughout his letters. Romans chapter 15, he's writing to the church in Rome, and he shares this this longing that he has, and it is this, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So his, his, his goal is to go and preach the gospel somewhere to people who haven't heard about Jesus yet. That's his ministry goal. And it's influenced by a a larger or or maybe even a deeper life goal, which he shares in Philippians. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pursuing Jesus is his highest goal in life. It's what guides all the things that he does. He puts it another way in 2 Timothy. We read this uh, a, a couple months ago. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Here we see how Paul's goal, his aim in life, influences everything else that he does. He chooses not to be entangled in other things because he's solely focused on pleasing Jesus. And Paul realizes this isn't just a goal for this life, but it's also the purpose that God has created him for in the next life as well. He says, well, if that's my goal or that's what God has created me for in that life, why not go ahead and get started in this life as well? And so he's writing to the church in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about the prospect of death. And he says this, so whether we are at home, reunited with the Lord, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So Paul's life is just centered around this this singular aim. It's simple, and yet it's extremely complex. He just wants to be someone who pleases Jesus. I just want to please Jesus. And that's the reason why he endures when the world is falling down around him when he is thrown in prison, when all of his friends, those that he invested in, while they have abandoned him, Jesus hasn't. And so he perseveres. 
And after those first three, after he mentions his teaching, his conduct, and his purpose in life, he goes into a, a couple of implications of these. First thing he mentions is his faith, his trust in God. He remains confident that God is going to be a God who keeps his promises, that God is a God who is worth trusting because he knows that God is faithful. Especially in hardship, it is tempting for us to abandon the faith, to abandon a trust that God is a good God, a loving God who, who is for us. And yet for, for Paul, he reminds Timothy that the faith, this quiet confidence that God is at work in his life, on his behalf, that, that Timothy has seen in Paul's life for over a decade, it's still there. It's still there. It has not faltered over the last few years of hardship and difficulty. After he mentions faith, he mentions two other things. He mentions patience and love. I want to look at these two together. Why does he mention patience? Well, I want us to, again, consider what's taking place in Paul's life right now. After 20, 30 years of faithful ministry, he's given his life for the church. This is someone who has planted churches throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's planted churches throughout Greece. He's gone to bat for the free gift of grace for the Gentiles before the rest of the church and church councils like in Acts chapter 15. He's raised up church leaders for the next generation of the church. He's invested his life in the church. He's given his life to the church. And now Paul is in prison and virtually everyone abandons him. These churches that he's planted, these people that he's invested in, all of them have abandoned him, or virtually all of them have abandoned him. And can you just imagine how hurtful that would be for Paul? How frustrating that would have been? And yet rather than Paul getting bitter, he shows patience. He shows kindness. He shows love toward those who have wronged him. He follows his, the example of his Lord Jesus, who is long-suffering. And that's what Paul means here when he talks about his patience and his love. He doesn't burn bridges. He remains patient and loving with the hope that it would lead to repentance. What a profound picture and our day and age, this, this day of hostility and animosity and outrage, after being wronged, not to, to be livid and furious and make people pay, but instead to be a person of patience, to be steadfast in love with the hope, just like Jesus, that those who have gone astray, that those who have wronged you will return to the gospel. And so Paul says to Timothy, in, in light of these false teachers, I want you to be patient because God might be at work in their lives through your patience, through your love. And they may repent. Follow my patience and my love. Next, he mentions his sufferings and says, you know what, in these sufferings, I have remained steadfast. His confidence that Jesus has not abandoned him means that he will not his, turn his back on Jesus either. And Paul is setting forth his own life 
as an example of endurance to Timothy in the midst of hardship and suffering. He says, you know what? In the midst of good, in the midst of bad, over the last 20, 30 years of pastoral ministry, this is what I have done. I have remained faithful and steadfast. And Timothy, I want you to do the same thing as well. And then he mentions suffering and mentions persecution here in, in verse uh, 11. If you're familiar with the, the book of Acts, Paul has, Paul has a lot of, of examples to choose from when it comes to persecution and suffering, doesn't he? He, he has a lot of, of different experiences of hardship, and he could choose from, from a number of different options, but instead he actually focuses on something from the beginning of his, life, uh, beginning of his ministry. Uh, his first missionary journey while he is going to Antioch, he's going to Iconium, and he's going to Lystra. Why specifically does he focus on this? Something that would have taken place 15 or more years before this moment. Well, it's because Timothy is from Lystra. Timothy is, is from this area. He would have been an unconverted half-Jew when those persecutions against Paul first broke out. When Paul was thrown out of the synagogues in Lystra, it's likely that Timothy would have been there. When people tried to stone and kill him, even if Timothy didn't participate in them, and he probably didn't, Timothy would have known the people who did. Timothy would have been well aware of what was taking place in his small town with this outsider named Paul. And it's likely that Paul's suffering for the gospel, his persecution, left an impression on Timothy so that when Timothy encounters Paul a couple years later, Paul returns to Lystra and he not only finds a vibrant church, but he also finds this young man named Timothy who is well spoken of by everyone in the church. And what Paul is doing by mentioning this specific area of suffering and persecution. He's saying that, Timothy, I know that right now you are experiencing an uptick in persecution. You're experiencing more hardship and more suffering. But I want you to remind, or I want to remind you that before we even met, I was experiencing this. I was likely experiencing this from people who are now Christians in Lystra. Paul is saying to Timothy, I want you to, to know that suffering for the gospel is not an aberration. It's not unusual. In fact, it's a part of faithful gospel ministry. But he doesn't just go, down a tri- uh, go to, on this trip down memory lane saying, Timothy, you better get ready because this is part of remaining faithful in the gospel. Notice how he ends verse 11. He says this, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So Paul, he's talking about suffering, he's talking about persecution, hardship, and he still can't help himself from mentioning God's goodness, how God is faithful even in the midst of hardship, that God rescued me from these things. He's not saying that that God rescued me from the persecutions, he's saying God rescued me from death. That was the end goal, that's what people wanted when they were persecuting him. That's not a guarantee that God is always going to act that way, but it is a reminder that God is always going to be faithful to his people. And as he's talking about a persecution, he, he, he transitions now as he's talking to Timothy. He says, you know what? We're talking about persecution. I want to just go into this a little bit more. Verses 12 and 13, he gives us this, this frame of mind. 
This is what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul doesn't want Timothy, he doesn't want us to be deluded that faithfulness to Jesus is going to mean hardship. It may not mean physical suffering, but it will mean hardship. Those three cities that Paul mentioned earlier in the the previous verse, the first bit of persecution that he experienced was ridicule. Acts chapter 13. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They were reviling him. So Paul is insisting that a faithful life will eventually run into opposition. That Jesus experienced it, Paul experienced it, now Timothy is experiencing it as well. But there's also another path. And we should always read verse 12 in the context or in light of verse 13 because he says there's, a, there's another path. The path of remaining in the gospel might lead to hardship from time to time, but the alternative is far worse. It's not just hardship from time to time. Those who have abandoned the gospel will go from bad to worse. They will be deceiving others and they will dece- be deceived themselves. And by laying these two paths together, faithfulness but hardship, ease but deception, Paul is again, he's encouraging Timothy to have the right mindset about suffering the same thing that he has. That this is part of pleasing Jesus every now and then. This is part of looking to the faith of those who go before you. To look not only to their teaching, not only to the fruit of the gospel in their lives, but also their mindset when they are faced with hardship and with suffering. If we want to be a people who remain in the gospel, then that means that we have to look to the faith of those who go before us. And there's two lenses here that we could look at this, that we could understand this. The faith of those who are afar and those that are close up. I started this morning with this example of a faith of those who are afar. We can learn a a great deal from the faith of those who have gone before us, historical figures, even contemporaries that we will never meet in our life but but are faithful in their lives. But Paul's chief concern here isn't that that Timothy would emulate someone that he doesn't even know, that he has no chance of meeting, but instead that he would emulate a life that he has seen up close. And that should be the same for all of us. That that the church is meant to be a fellowship of believers. It's meant to to be engaging in life with one another, both the good parts and the bad parts, so that we can see what the gospel looks like each and every day. This is a part of God calling people together into a family. It's a part of spiritual growth. It's a part of perseverance in the faith. It allows us to look toward the faith of those who go before us to be involved in the lives of others. But Paul gives another key. Here at the end of this passage, he gives us a second key to remain in the gospel. And we're going to go into this a little bit more in depth over the next couple of weeks as we consider verses 16 and 17 and, and what do they say about Scripture? 
But Paul starts by talking about verses, in verses 14 and 15, he talks about scripture and how it helps us to persevere in the faith. So if you want to, if you want to remain in the gospel, if you want to persevere, the key, the second key is to look to the scriptures. Is to look to the scriptures. Verses 14 and 15. Actually, we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter, but we're going to only focus on verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So first, Paul gives us this command. He says, I want you to continue in what you have learned, what you have firmly believed. In other words, I want you to remain in the gospel. But notice how he describes it. He describes it as saying it is worth remaining in this because of First, who you learned it from, and two, what it is. In other words, Paul is saying that the scriptures are worth trusting, they're worth clinging to because of their legacy. Who Paul, or excuse me, who Timothy heard this from? Specifically, the legacy of the scriptures in Timothy's life. We don't immediately catch this in our English translations, but when Paul says, knowing from whom you learned it, that word whom is plural. It's referring to more than just one person. It's not referring to Paul, or at least not primarily to Paul. So what is he's saying here is when, when the gospel or the gospel is trustworthy, and it's trustworthy because you have seen how it has been at work, how it has transformed the lives of the people who shared it with you. And the people who shared it with him are his mom. And his grandma. This isn't primarily a reference to Paul. It's instead primarily a a reference to the tireless work of his single mom. And of her mom. Once they believed in the gospel, they took it upon themselves to do all that they could to invest the gospel into the life of their son, Timothy. About the time of 2 Timothy, Paul, or excuse me, Timothy is probably in his mid to late 30s. And Paul says that he has been immersed in the Bible since he was a child. This word child refers to infants. It refers to unborn children. Paul is stressing that the scriptures have been a part of Timothy's life before he even can walk or talk. And it's all because of his mom and all because of his grandma. Is there a greater legacy to leave the next generation than this? John Murray was a a Scottish pastor from the 20th century, and he described his own father's faith this way. At at his father's funeral, he said this, There were few men in the highlands of Scotland whose life and memory were surrounded by such fragrance and whose life of consistent godliness claimed such veneration and respect. To be his son is a great privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility. And as a father, I can think of no greater praise to receive from children that decades from now that my 
kids would, would look back at my life and see a legacy of the scriptures transforming my life. And so Paul is telling Timothy here, I want you to look to the scriptures because of their legacy in your life. And before we continue, I I just want to recognize that that's not the case for all of us. Looking back on your childhood, you you can't say that you were given a legacy of the faith. Or if you were, it's a far cry from this transformational power of the scriptures in the life of your family. But here's another reason why the church is such a good gift from God. If you If you didn't encounter the scriptures at a young age, God has given you the family of God where the scriptures have been at work for millennia. There's a legacy of the scriptures, God using the scriptures to transform people's lives. And when we are a part of the church, we get to join in in that work. And Paul gives another reason why we should trust the scriptures, why we should look to the scriptures, not only because of their legacy, but also because of their transformative power in our own lives. This is what he's saying at the very end of verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying it is impossible for us to encounter the saving power of God in the gospel without the scriptures. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but that salvation is revealed in the Bible. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to look to the scriptures. I want you to to look over the last 15 years of your life and, and see their power in your life. You remember who you once were and how the Bible has now transformed you. And that will help you to remain in the gospel by clinging to the scriptures. This passage is a simple charge. It's to remain in the gospel. It's to persevere to the end. It's to be faithful to the end. And if we look to and follow the faith of those who have gone before us, and if we look to the scriptures, we will endure to the end. I don't know what legacy you have been given, but you have been given the church. And you've been given other people that can point you toward Jesus. And you've been given God's word to see how the gospel applies in each and every situation of life. One pastor put the incredible, incredible gift of God's word in perspective when he wrote it this way. We think that life would be so much easier if God would just miraculously write his will in the clouds or speak in the thunder. But if he wrote in the clouds, then the words would all blow away. And if he spoke in the thunder, then his voice would fade away. So instead, God says, in essence, would you mind if I just wrote my words down for you so that you have them whenever you, wherever you go and whenever they are needed? God has given us his abiding word so that we are not without his voice in all the trials and temptations of this life. In the Bible, God yet speaks to his people. Let's pray.
God, we do ask that you would help us to be a people who remain in the gospel, who persevere, who are faithful, even when times are hard and challenging. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures. We thank you for the gift of the church. God, we ask that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to embrace these gifts, to not squander them, not waste them, but use them as you intended so that we can remain. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.